Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. And thank you for joining us here for another Arab Shabbat broadcast here at Lion and Lamb Ministries in Benai Shalom. I'm Ephraim Judah from our family to yours. Thank you for inviting us into your home on this Sabbath and this weekend. A um, couple of announcements that we have for this week. Um, we are excited to announce that we are going to be putting together another regional conference event here in the local area, uh, here in central Oklahoma, for the uh, Festival of Lights for Hanukkah. We have more details that will be coming soon. Um, our brethren had such a wonderful time at the Feast of Shavuot, the regional conference that we put together recently, that we were looking for more opportunities to fellowship with one another. So we're going to be putting uh, our announcements together for that. And so details are soon to come, but we want to uh, plant the seed and get you guys excited to join us again here in the central Oklahoma area, everyone in the region, for another event to get together, to celebrate, to worship together, hear great teaching, and invite some uh, guest speakers as well. So look forward to announcements for that. Um, want to always uh, thank you um, from my family personally for the prayers uh, that you guys have lifted up for my mom. We want you to ask, we cover your prayers to continue to lift us up for healing and strength through these trying times for my father, my sister, my mother, for me as well. We thank you very much for those prayers. And also, we, wanna, we don't always say it, but we do want to ask that uh, if you're led of heart to uh, give a donation this week to Line of Land Ministries, we are continuing to be steadfast in everything that we do here with our broadcasts, with our Yavo magazine, and all of the outreaches that we do here at this ministry. So if you are stirred in your heart to give a donation, your tithe for this week, we thank you for that as well. So right now, let us enter into the Sabbath with the Kiddush and the family blessings. Thank you for joining us once again. Join my family as we usher in the Sabbath. Baruch Atah Adonai Eloheinu Melech HaOlam Asher kedeshanu bemetvotav vetzivanu lehad lekner shel shabbat. Amen. Blessed art thou, Lord our God, King of the universe, who has sanctified us by his commandments and has commanded us to be a light to the nations and has given us Yeshua the Messiah, the light of the world. Amen. Bless the wine. Baruch Adonai, Eloheinu Melech HaOlam, Borei Amen. Blessed art thou, Lord our God, King of the universe, who creates the fruit of the vine. Amen. One beautiful bread. Hamotzi. Hamotzi lechem in haaretz. We give thanks to God for bread. Our voices rise in song together as our joyful prayer is said. Baruch atah Adonai, 
Let's bless our wives. Lord, thank you so much for blessing me with my wife. I pray that you bless her hands as she prepares our home and takes care of it throughout the week. Thank you for blessing her hands as she takes care of our child. And thank you for blessing me with everything I can do to bless my wife so that she continues to bless me. Thank you, Father. Amen. Now we do the blessings over the sons.
Bless the Lord who is to be praised. Blessed be the Lord who is praised for all eternity. Amen. And now the Micha Mocha. Micha Mocha Ba'elim Adonai Micha Mocha Nedahar Bachodesh Norat Echilot who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, Lord, there is none else. You are awesome in praise, doing wonders, O Lord, who is like 
like you, O Lord. Amen. And now the blessing of the Messiah. Baruch atah Adonai, Eloheinu melech ha'alam, asher natan lanu et derech ha'yeshua b'mashiach yeshua. All together. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has given us the way of salvation in Messiah Yeshua. Amen. And now the Veshamru. Veshamru v'nei Yisrael et ha'shabat, la'asot et ha'shabat l'adortam b'rit olam. B'nei avayom, b'nei Yisrael, odhit le'olam, k'shashet yamim asadonai, et ha'shmaim v'et ha'aretz avayom ha'shabi'i shabat v'yinafash. All together. The children of Israel shall keep the Sabbath and observe the Sabbath throughout their generations as an everlasting covenant. It is a sign between me and the children of Israel forever, for in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day he ceased from his work and was refreshed. Amen. If it all turn and face east toward Jerusalem for the watchword of our faith, the Shema. Shema Yisrael Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad Baruch Shem Kivod Malchuto Le'olam Vayed Yeshua HaMashiach Hu Adonai Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. Blessed be His name, whose glorious kingdom is forever and ever. Yeshua the Messiah, He is Lord. Amen. And now the Ve'ahavta. Ve'ahavta et Adonai Ochecha, b'chol levavcha uv'chol nashicha, uv'chol me'odecha. Ve'heyu ha'devarim ha'ale a'asher nechim ezavcha, ha'yom alevavcha. V'shinan tam la'venecha, v'tepardabam p'shivtecha, b'yetecha, uv'lechtecha, v'derechu shakbika, uv'kumika. Ukershatam la ota yadecha, veheyu la totvobinenecha, uchetatama mazuzo petecha, uvisharecha. All together. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words which I command you this day shall be upon your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall speak of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. You shall bind them for a sign upon your hand, and they shall be for frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them upon the doorposts of your house and upon your gates. Amen. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Abba, we magnify you here in this place. And we declare that there is no God like you, no king like you. Father, all we can say is that our lives belong to you. We honor you. We love you. You're our all in all. And Father, we magnify your holy name here in this place.
Oh 
Shabbat shalom. Shabbat shalom. If you would, turn in your Bibles to the book of Numbers in the wilderness, Bamibar, to chapter 13, where our Torah portion will begin for this week. And as you are opening the scripture, as always, we do the blessing before the Torah. Baruch Adonai Eloheinu Melech Haolam Asher Bachabanu Mikol Haamim Venatan Lanu Et Torato Baruch Adonai Nontain HaTorah Amen. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has chosen us from among all peoples and has given us your Torah. Blessed are you, O Lord, giver of the Torah. Amen. Our portion for this week is entitled Shalach, which comes from the first phrase in chapter 13 where it says, send men to spy out the land. Sometimes this portion is called Shalach Lecha, which in some translations it says, send for yourself men that will go into the land. This is one of, this is the passage that precedes the rebellion of Korah, which we've been, I've been kind of counting down in our Torah portions leading up to this point. And this is the time in which the narrative of God delivering the children of Israel. We're going to the promised land, the, the narrative of redemption, salvation from Egypt, covenant made with the children of Israel. And now we're going to the promised land. Now it's time to go to the promised land. Now, those of us that obviously have been studying Torah for a great number of years, we know what's going to happen. We know the story. We know the uh, another rebellion, another time that the children of Israel grumble against God. But this time they lose their ticket to the promised land. If you ever watched a movie and it has maybe a tragic situation, a tragic ending, and every time you sit and watch that movie, you always hope that maybe this time things will be different. Things, that will, things will change and maybe we'll have a happy ending this time. But as you all know, that doesn't happen when you sit and you read the stories of old or watch a movie that was made years ago. It doesn't matter how many times you watch Bambi, Bambi's mom always dies. Doesn't matter how many times you watch Butch Cassidy and Sundance Kid, Robert Redford, Paul Newman, they don't make it at the end, unfortunately. It just, it, you always yearn and you always hope for a better outcome. For the, for the kids today, it's um, in, no matter how many times you watch Lion King, Mufasa always dies and it's tragic every single time. So that's for the younger audience. This is that way I feel about this Torah portion. As we get here, there's so many blessings. God is making covenant with the children of Israel. He's calling them out. He's leading them out of Egypt. He's leading them through the promised land, making covenant with them. Salvation through the Red Sea. Everything that they've gone through. And now the goal is finally here. We're finally come to the time when we're going to go into the promised land. And God says, go take the promised land. But what the children of Israel do is they instead send for themselves spies to go into the land. Now, 
If you just read here from Numbers chapter 13, you might read and say, well, it looks like God speaks to Moses and says, send the men into the land. That The Lord is actually instructing it to take place. However, if you go to Deuteronomy chapter 1, we get a little bit more backstory here of exactly what was going on. So let's go to Deuteronomy chapter 1, starting at verse 19. And this is where we can get a little bit more detail of what was going on here. So we departed from Horeb and went through all that great and terrible wilderness, which we saw on the way to the mountains of the Amorites, as the Lord our God had commanded us. Then we came to Kadesh Barnea, and I said to you, this is Moses speaking, you have come to the mountains of the Amorites, which the Lord our God is giving us. Look, the Lord your God has set the land before you. Go up and possess it as the Lord God of your fathers has spoken to you. Do not fear or be discouraged. Verse 22, and every man, every one of you came near to me and said, let us send men before us and let them search out the land for us and bring back word of its of the way in which we should go up and the cities into which we came. The plan pleased me. So I took 12 of your men, one man from each tribe, and they departed and went up into the mountains and came to the valley of Eshkol and spied it out. And they also took some of the fruit of the land in their hands and brought it down to us and brought back word of it, of of us saying, it is a good land which the Lord our God is given is giving us. So here we go. We're going into the land. Remember the children of Israel? Remember that pillar of cloud by day, that pillar of fire by night, that when it went up and went, that's when the children of Israel followed? What changed? Why are the children of Israel not following that pillar of cloud that is going to go and it, it will show the way into the promised land? At first blush, we look at this and it's this is not a bad idea. Anybody who's had either a military background or just likes to plan things out. Let's send a recon into the land. Which way do we go? Do we go up this mountain pass or through this uh, this valley, which would be the easiest way for us to go? It'd be great to get some recon to understand which way to go. That makes sense. And we're going to go into the land and we're going to see what what bountiful things that there is. However, if God himself is commanding you to go, if God is picking up that pillar i still want to know what happened that morning with that pillar did the pillar start moving and then everyone stopped and said let's send the spies we don't have that detail but what we have here is we have a disconnect between the children of israel following and doing the command of the lord once again this is not obviously not a new occurrence once again not following the command of the lord and thinking that they have a better idea or a better plan before them what happens is they pick out 12 men, 12 leaders of the tribes of Israel. Now, these were not the same men that were called by God by name in Numbers chapter 1. These were other men. And what it seems to be is that these men were selected by the children of Israel. They were chosen. They were voted on, if you will, to go and they would be the ones that would go into the land. Now, we have a couple of interesting names of note that would be going on this journey with them. The first one being... Caleb, the son of Yephunneh. Caleb is from the tribe of Judah. And this is a man who, as we go through and we'll learn, that this was a great man who was righteous, who was honorable, who was courageous in everything that he did. And this is going to be a man that we'll hear about more in the future. But this is the first time in Scripture that he's actually mentioned by name. He's of the tribe of Judah. And the great thing about Caleb is this, and this is one thing I love to be able to encourage the brethren with, is this. Caleb was not naturally born. 
He was a Kenizzite. His father, Yephaneh, never mentioned before in scripture. He was grafted into the tribe of, of Judah and then raised up and chosen and selected to be the man that represents the tribe of Judah going into the wilderness to spy out the land. This is a wonderful thing. For anyone who is not naturally born, who don't, who don't know your heritage or your identity, yet you identify with the God of Israel, you believe in the God of Israel, you desire to be adopted in into the family of Israel. There is no stipulation that says that somebody who's not naturally born, that they can't rise up to be a leader amongst the people. I encourage all the brethren that I meet throughout everything that we've done here at the ministry, even though uh, my last name is Judah, I know who I am, I know who my heritage is. That does not make me greater or better than anyone else who comes, who does the work of the Lord, who does the work of the ministry, who identifies with the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and that there will be those that will be greater than I, and even if they're not naturally born, because we have the example of Caleb, it's not for us to ever speak against that, because this was a great man in the history of Israel, yet not naturally born son of Israel. Caleb has a great name as well. Caleb in the Hebrew is, uh, it actually means, if you just look up the name Caleb, it actually says it means dog. And we don't really know exactly why that meaning is, if that had something to do with his not naturally born uh, uh, heritage, that maybe that was something, maybe that was a name that was given to him because of that. Don't really know, could speculate. However, if you go into the deeper Hebrew of Caleb, it's made up of three Hebrew letters. It's a kaf, a lamed, and a bet. And what it happens and what you do is when you look into the Hebrew word, sometimes there's a single word that is sometimes a compound word made up of two other words. So one of the things we always do with the name Caleb is this. It's the first part of his name, the kaf and the lamed, makes the word kol in the Hebrew, which means all or everything encompassing. And then also then the last half of his name makes the word lav, lamed, and bet. And that is the word heart. And so what we will know and learn about Caleb is that he has all heart. He leads with his heart, with his spirit. And it says that here in the scripture, here in our portion, it'll talk about how him being led of the spirit and that the spirit of God is in his heart leading him. And so this is something that we can always think about for anybody named Caleb. It's a popular name amongst uh, the Messianic movement as well. It's a wonderful name that continues to teach us about the kind of man that, the, that he was and the leader that he was when he comes back and is one of the two that give a good report of the land. We also have the name listed here. It starts here in our scripture here in 13. It says Hosea, the son of Nun. Now, the reason why that sounds so familiar is that that's actually Joshua, the son of Nun. And here in our passage, it talks about very specifically in verse 16. It says that the names of the men that Moses sent to spy out the land and Moses called Hosea, the son of Nun, Joshua. So it says almost that his given name was Hosea, which means salvation. But then Moses gave him the name Joshua or Yahushua in the Hebrew. That he, when he took, takes the name Hosea and a yod is added to the name in the Hebrew. And what he does is it changes the meaning of the name to be God is salvation. Now, obviously, uh, us who are believers in Yeshua the Messiah, the name Joshua, Yehoshua, Yeshua are all from the same root, the same meaning. They kind of represent the same thing. And so 
we will now see so many times a parallel in Joshua's life of him being a Messiah-like figure in the same way that Moses was, in the same way that King David will be. There's a Messiah-like figure in the narrative of the scripture as we go along, and it's almost it should be blatantly obvious to him, to us because of the similarity in the name. So here we have Hosea, the son of Nun. One other interesting thing of note, he came from the tribe of Ephraim. So we have Caleb from the tribe of Judah, Joshua from the tribe of Ephraim. And these are the two men, after being sent in to, to spy out the land, they're going to come back with a good report. They're going to be the ones who are standing up to try and unify the whole house of Israel. These two men representing the tribe of Judah, the tribe of Ephraim. There is a greater messianic prophecy in this entire story of how these two men, these two tribes are going to be crucial in the reunification and the building up of the whole house of Israel entering the promised land at the end of the age. So there is a prophecy here connecting here. Also, Hosea is the same name, same root of the prophet Hosea, who was a prophet to the northern kingdom when when the kingdoms were split after King David into two different kingdoms and the kingdom of Ephraim or Israel, the kingdom of Judah in the southern kingdom, that there was, so there's a similarity, there's a connection between the prophet Hosea and Joshua as well, simply in their names. So what happens is this. Here's one of the things that I think about this. When it says Moses called Joshua, I like to think that when the children of Israel voted on these men to go into the land, that Moses might have had a hint or an inkling that this might not go well. So he took his servant, his right-hand man. Joshua's been with him all throughout uh, the book of Exodus and in getting the law. His name is, is present in many other places in Scripture before and after. And I believe Moses said, Joshua, I need you to go and keep an eye on things. I need you to, to, to be there because he saw the people, the people that were being chosen. Once again, we have another listing of names, which I've said already before. There is a greater teaching and a greater lesson in the meanings of these names that one could study out. That there might be something that tells us more about these ten men, these ten spies that will give a bad report. So there could be other hidden meanings in their names. I encourage other people to seek that out. And so there's something else going on. We know that there was something else going on. And so I believe Moses looked at Joshua and said, I, got, I need you to go. I need you to keep them strong, courageous, and we need to make sure that this comes back with a good report. So they go into the land. They enter into the land. It says the locations that they went. They went uh, as far as from the ancient names of the locations they went. We believe they went as far north as Lebanon from the Negev desert of Israel all the way up through Lebanon, down through Hebron, the West Bank that is modern day. And they traveled through the entire land, 12 men. They were spies. They were not nobody people. They did not identify themselves as Israelites. They went and they appeared to be a traveling band that went to the kings and the cities and, and explored what was going to be the promised land. <clears throat> so they come back. They come back with a cluster of grapes that is so large that two men have to be carried. Uh, it has to be carried on a pole between two men because it says that they were to bring back some fruit of the land. Is the fruit good? Is the uh, what are the cities like? And so they, they had a mission going forward. And if you've ever been to Israel and traveled, the uh, symbol of tourism for the land of Israel is two men holding a large cluster, cluster of grapes. And it comes from this story here. So they come back, and let me now read here at verse 26 what happens when they come back from spying out the land. Now they departed and came back to Moses and Aaron and all the congregation of the children of Israel in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh. 
They brought back word to them and to all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. And they told them and said, we went into the land where you sent us. It truly flows with milk and honey. This is its fruit. Nevertheless, the people who dwell in the land are strong. The cities are fortified and very large. Moreover, we saw the descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites dwell in the land of the south. The Hittites and the Jebusites and the Amorites dwell in the mountains. And the Canaanites dwell by the sea and along the banks of the Jordan. So here we have them reporting back. And this is a lesson that should be given to anybody who ever shares news, whoever is in journalism. Share just the facts. Don't give opinion. Don't give conjecture. Share just the facts. They've now explained that, yes, they're, they're, people are strong there. We were asked to go look and see, are the people strong? Are the cities fortified? What's the fruit like? They come back. They report the facts. Yes, the people are there. Yes, they are strong. Yes, the cities are fortified. Should that stop us? From going and taking the land, a company of approximately 2 million people with 600,000 men that can go to war. Is this going to be something that's going to stop us, especially if the Lord's leading us? Of course not. But at this point, they're reporting just the facts. Now, this is interesting here, verse 30. It says this. Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, let us go up at once and take possession, for we are well able to overcome it. We can't get the body language of the people of Israel by just reading the scripture. But I can kind of picture it and I can see it. Is that as they started to talk about the strength of the people of the land and how fortified the cities were, you can just picture the body language of the people starting to become fearful. Starting to worry about this. Caleb saw this happening. He saw it happening right before him. And saw what was going on. So he steps up. He speaks out. He quiets the crowd because the murmurs probably started going across the people. And he quiets the crowd and says, there is no reason to fear. There is no reason that we should that we should wither away and think that we cannot take this land. It doesn't matter how fortified the cities are. It doesn't matter how many there are because we are being led by the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. He delivered us through the Red Sea. He made covenant with us. We're here. We're ready to go. But what happens is the children of Israel, they don't heed the words. They don't heed the words of the one man, of the, 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 the small, the minority of people that would be standing up and saying, we can take the land, just Caleb or just Joshua. They took the word of the other ten spies in the descriptions. This is what continues. But the men who had gone up with him, this is the other spies, we are not able to go up against the people for they are stronger than we. And they gave the children of Israel a bad report of the land, which they spied out, saying, The land the, to, through which we have gone as spies is a land that devours its inhabitants. And all the people who we saw is men of great stature. We saw the giants, or the Nephilim in most translations. The descendants of Anak came from the Nephilim. And we were like grasshoppers in our, in our own sight. And so we were in their sight. This is where the journalist goes too far. They share their own opinion. This was a bad report. Now, it doesn't necessarily say an untrue or a false report. They said it was a bad report. So when we say when they say that the, the land was great, then I'm sure it was the people in there. They were strong. Yes. But it was a bad report. It was not what was supposed to be shared. It was not what the children of Israel needed to hear to go and take the promised land. Now, when it comes to the Nephilim, there's a question about whether that was a true part of, this, of the report or not, because the Nephilim were before the flood. 
That was where the, the, the sons of God, the angels, came and intermarried with the sons of man. And they created giants in the land. And we have reference of the Nephilim before the flood. Didn't everybody die in the flood? Did the Nephilim survive the flood? Many people have speculated, I believe, kind of going on some big rabbit trails on who the Nephilim were and they're still with us and different things like that. I tend to disagree with those because I tend to believe that God delivered Noah, his family, and that this was part of a bad report. There's no truth in the fact that we know the Nephilim were still present. But again, a bad report. And they listen to the bad report, that juicy chunk of gossip that, they, that people love to hear. And they love, you can't ever take your eyes off a train wreck. Rather than listening to the good things, the good news, ten, people always are more enticed or, or become more overwhelmed with emotion when they hear the bad report instead. And that's what we have here happening with the children of Israel here in this report. Chapter 14. So all the children, all the congregation lifted up their voices and cried and the people, they wept that night and all the children of Israel complained against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, if only we had died in the land of Egypt or we had died, only we had died in this wilderness. Why has the Lord brought us to this land to fall by the sword that our wives and our children should become victims? Would it not be better for us to return to Egypt? So they said to one another, let us select a leader and return to Egypt. I have no idea who came up with that idea because any kind of speculation I can figure out in my mind, that doesn't end very well either. You think Pharaoh's going to open you with welcome arms, that you're going to come back, show up at, at Pharaoh's doorstep and say, hey, we're back. We didn't want to go to the, the promised land there. And Pharaoh would just look at him and just be like, what is this? Like as if he wouldn't just slay him right then and there. He'd want to know where all his gold is and they'd tell him like, oh yeah, your gold, we made a golden calf and then it got ground up and then we had to drink it so all the gold's gone. <laughs> Pharaoh's not going to like that. We're going to talk about all these blessings, all these things, but we didn't want to go die in the wilderness and so we're back, Pharaoh. Will you welcome us back? This, this is the silliest excuse I could ever imagine. Obviously, it makes me chuckle every time that I read, even though we're talking about something that's obviously not funny. Then Moses and Aaron fell on their faces before the assembly and the congregation of the children of Israel. But Joshua, the son of Nun, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, who, are, who were among those who spied out the land, tore their clothes. And they spoke to all the congregation, the children of Israel, saying, The land we pass through to spy out is exceedingly good land. If the Lord delights in us, then he will bring us into the land and give it to us. A land which flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord. Do not fear the Lord, the people of the land. For they are our bread. Their protection has departed from them and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. And all the congregation said to stone them with stones. Now the glory of the Lord appeared at the tabernacle of meeting before the children of Israel. Caleb and Joshua are doing their level best to bring the people back to understand. And then the glory of the Lord appears. Whenever you see this in scripture, sometimes there's good things. Sometimes there's very bad things when the glory of the Lord appears. We never know when he's going to come. He's going to consume somebody who's been rebelling against them, against God, or if he's going to just make himself known and then meet with Moses and Aaron. He appears before the, the Lord and the Lord says to Moses, how long will these people reject me? How long will they not believe me? With all the signs that I've performed among them, I will strike them with pestilence and disinherit them. And I will make you a nation greater and mightier than they. Talking to Moses. And Moses said to the Lord, then the Egyptians will hear it. For, you, my, for your might, for by your might, you brought these people up from among them. 
And they will tell it to the inhabitants of the land. And they heard that you, Lord, are among these people. And that you, Lord, are seen face to face. And your cloud stands above them. And you go before them in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. Now, if you kill these people as one man, then the nations which have heard of your fame will speak, saying, Because the Lord was not able to bring this people into the land which he swore to give to them. Therefore, he killed them in the wilderness. And now pray... Let the power of the Lord be great, just as you have spoken, saying, The Lord is long-suffering and abundant in mercy, forgiving iniquity and transgression. But he by no means clears the guilty, visiting the iniquity on the fathers of the children to the third and fourth generation. That wording sounds very familiar because this goes back to Exodus chapter 34. The attributes of mercy of God, that he is forgiving and he is a loving God and he does not leave the guilty unpunished yet. He forgives iniquity and transgression. Moses is praying back to God the things that God has said. And my father said for many years, and I agree 100%, that there is nothing more powerful than you to just pray and speak the words of God. What he has said. If he has given you promises, speak those promises into existence. If he has spoken truth, you, yourself, speak and share the truth with others. This is a powerful thing that Moses has done, speaking back to God. And we can learn this lesson through this process because this whole thing, I may have asked, why did this happen? Why did it have to happen this way? We're hoping for a better outcome. But this is the history. This is what happened. And we are now able to learn from this example and what we are to do. So when we have an opportunity to pray back to God what he has spoken, we have that example here with Moses. We can take that to application in our own personal lives. The Lord speaks and says, I have pardoned according to your word, but truly as I live, all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord, because all these men have seen my glory and the signs which I've done in Egypt and in the wilderness, and they have put me to test now these ten times, and have not heeded my voice. They certainly shall not see the land for which I swore to their fathers, nor shall shall any of those who rejected me see it, but my servant Caleb, because he is of different spirit and has followed me fully. I will bring into the land where he went, and the descendants shall inherit it. So then, now now the Amalekites and the Canaanites dwell in the valley. Tomorrow turn and move toward the wilderness of the way of the Red Sea. So now they get the instruction to go away. One of the things that's always puzzled some people sometimes when it says he put them to test ten times. I do want to run down this list so that you can have this note, be able to answer this question, that what are the ten times the children of Israel put God to the test, that they did not obey him? This is the list of those ten things. At the Red Sea, they feared for their life when Pharaoh was coming. They did not, and then he, they were delivered through the Red Sea. That was number one. The waters of Mara, after crossing the Red Sea, they journeyed in the wilderness. They became thirsty, and so the waters of bitterness, where the water was bitter, Moses put a tree or a branch in the water. It became sweet, but again, they were tested there. They were hungry in the wilderness of Sin, and that's for, given for us in Exodus chapter 16. Also, they were then given manna, and they were told to not keep the manna overnight. However, some people did. They did not believe them. It became infested with worms. So that, once again, they tested the Lord that they tried to keep the manna for themselves. Also, gathering manna on the Sabbath. There were men that went on the Sabbath day to go out to look for the manna, and they didn't find any because they were to remain in their homes and eat the manna they had gathered previously. That was number five. Number six, the water at Rephidim, where they became thirsty and water came from the rock. Number seven, the creation of the golden calf. Number eight, 
at Taborah, which was in our previous Torah portion, where the fire of the where the people grumbled against God and he killed some of the people at the edge of the camp. That's number eight. Number nine, the graves of craving where they demanded the quail and the meat. And this being the tenth time where they gave the bad report of the land. Ten times. God gave us ten commandments. God gave us a plan and a purpose to, to make covenant with us and get through ten commands and ten words that he is. And the, word, and the number ten always represents um, judgment and, and different things. If we can get these ten things right when it comes to believing in God and his covenant, then we will not receive judgment. We will not, that, that we won't be judged. We'll be blessed if we keep these commandments. But ten times, in contrast to the ten words given to the children of Israel by God at Mount Sinai, we now have ten times the children of Israel have tested us. And eye for eye, the way that God works, this was the straw that said, God will now not let the children of Israel enter into the promised land. He says this later on in the passage where it talks about that because the, the spies journeyed for 40 days in the wilderness to explore, it's because of that that their guilt will, be, will they will bear for one year for each day they spied out the land, namely 40 years. God has this way of balancing these things out. Though he, that we chose to go into the land for 40 days, it's because of that that our judgment was 40 years in the wilderness. We tested God 10 times in contrast to God's 10 commandments is now he is when he has said, you will now not go into the promised land as I promised you in that covenant. So God has a way of balancing these things out. Once again, we have the opportunity to see these things and learn these things. And we learn, do not test God. Do not think that you know better. If God has led you a certain way down a path of faith, of righteousness, then do not deviate from that path and follow him, follow his lead. And do not put him to the test because the same amount of times that you test him, if that equals the same amount of promises that he's made to you, then at some point he will find another person. To, for, to believe in him. We should always remember to not test the Lord and follow his lead. It says also here, it talks about how they feared their little ones becoming victims if they were to go into the land. Well, it turns out their little ones, the children, everyone under the age of 20, they would still get to see the land. They would continue and journey in the wilderness and then they will get to enter and inherit the promised land. But anyone over the age of 20 would not enter the land, save for Caleb and save for Joshua. I feel really bad. My heart goes out to the bad luck Brian that turned 20 like a week earlier before this event happened. That he was like, you're telling me if I'd been born 10 days later, I would have been able to see the promised land. My heart goes out to that guy. Obviously, we don't have any historical record of that, but I can only imagine. What continues on here is the children of Israel, they wake up the next day and then they say, they heard the words, they slept on it, and then they said, let's rise up now, let's go take the land. And so we have, starting in verse 39, a story in which, of chapter 14, where it talks about how they attempted to go and take the land, yet they were then, they were beaten back, they lost battles, and they were beaten all the way back as far as Hormah, which is near the area where we were geographically, where we think um, uh, Paran, the wilderness of Paran was. In the journeys of the wilderness in chapter 33, because of the names of some of the places, we do believe they journeyed well into the land in an attempt at this point in time to take the land. However, they were never able to capture it. We don't have any record of that the Lord led them on this, where, where the location of the pillar of fire or pillar of cloud is at this point in time. We don't know. But the children of Israel attempted to take the land, may have, may have even far into land, 
only to be beaten back all the way back to where they were and where this journey began. Remember, they were instructed to turn by way of the Red Sea and go back into the wilderness. So what we have here, this is an example that many parents know and understand and have realized over time, is that I've always said the children of Israel are appropriately named the children of Israel. Whenever you're talking to a child and you're telling them, do this, and they don't do it, and they do this, nope, you won't do this, then once you take something away from them, well, then they do what you ask them to do. Just like a child would react. And this is what we have in that same example here where they said, no, the judgment has been passed. You will not go to the promised land. It's like telling a kid, no, you're not going to go play with your friends. You're going to stay here at the house. Then suddenly he starts cleaning his room. So then he can go there because you told him clean your room and then you can go. So we have the children of Israel playing this out exactly. And we know the immaturity of the children of Israel, that they needed help. They needed guidance. They needed uh, to learn these things over time. But for us, we can now learn these lessons from the children of Israel. We can take these applications and we need to learn to be mature in our faith. When God says to believe this or do this, we do it and we follow. Our portion does continue on through chapter 15, though my time has run short, where we do talk about offerings that will then be taken, sin offerings. And we believe that some of these offerings that are commanded here at this time, when you enter into the land, make these offerings. Now, this command obviously is now to the younger generation. And we believe some of these sin offerings described here are to make restitution for this sin. That we, The reason why it's commanded here, following the bad report, is that we believe these sin offerings that are asked by the Lord to be done when they enter into the land is to remember this time. Remember this moment when we said, when the bad report came and you then spent 40 years in the wilderness, we are atoning for that sin when you do enter into the land. And at the end of chapter 15, we then have the description of the tassels. The zitziot that will be commanded to put a blue thread in the tassels at the corners of your garments so that you might look and remember the commandments of the Lord. This all encompasses, this whole portion causes us to, to, to remember and to truly focus and learn how do we not make this same mistake ever again. How do we ensure that tragedy does not strike a second time when it comes time to go and take the land that we obey the Lord and go and do it? We're to remember these things. We're to think on this. We're to learn from this example that when you see the, the zitzit on somebody's the corners of their garments, that you remember the commandments. You remember what God has done, everything that he has spoken. And remember also this Torah portion that that commandment comes from. So that we might remember the mistakes of old, though we wish it had been different, though we wish every time we read this passage or watch that movie that it might, the outcome might be different. Let us always remember to learn from those mistakes so that we ourselves, though our ancestors made those mistakes, we repent of those things and that we will learn to be holy as God has asked us to be, to be holy as him. And it does not matter, once again, whether you're naturally born whether you know your heritage and that you're a part of Israel or that you're Jewish or that all, it does not matter because all are grafted in just as Caleb was a leader amongst the tribes, just as Numbers chapter 15 at verse 15 says every offering taken is for those the stranger and sojourn who sojourns with you it does not matter where you're from. We anyone should take these lessons to heart. If you profess a faith in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and you're following him, his lead, his teachings, his instructions, his commandments, then we take those to heart 
we put them in our hearts entirely, just as Caleb's name means, and that we would follow and be of strong courage, bravery. It does not matter what's before us. Giants in the land, fortified walls that seem like they can't be overcome. With the Lord, all things are possible. And if we take these things to heart, we too can overcome those obstacles in our lives and in the future. Amen. Heavenly Father, we come before you on this Sabbath day. We thank you for your teaching, your instruction, your commandments. We thank you for the Torah portion of Shalach. We thank you for the stories of old, that we can learn these things, that we do not repeat these mistakes, these dire, that had dire consequences, Lord. Though they tested the Lord several times, Lord, they still were on their way to the promised land, but they went one too far, Father, as they tested you ten times in the wilderness. And so, Father, I pray that we would not test you, not even once. That we would have all faith in all of our hearts, Lord, as we lead, as you lead us and guide us, Father. Give us the strength, strength. give us the courage to overcome whatever is in front of us, Lord, in our personal lives, amongst our family, amongst our immediate friends, Lord. Whether it be the things that discourage us, Lord, that are greater and broader in the world that are going on, Father, I pray that we be of good courage at all times through all things. When you lead us, when that pillar moves, Father, I pray that we follow it with our whole hearts, without questioning, without thinking we know best, but that you will lead us, guide us, and one day, Lord, we will see that promised land that you have promised to our ancestors. We look forward to that day, Lord. We pray for your soon coming and your return and all the blessings that will come at that time. We love you. We bless you. We thank you on the Sabbath day in Yeshua's name. Amen. And have a blessing after the Torah. Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu melech haolam Asher natan lanu Torah temet V'chayalam natah betocheinu Baruch atah Adonai Nonten ha-Torah Amen Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has given us the Torah of truth and has planted everlasting life in our midst. Blessed are you, O Lord, giver of the Torah. Amen. Shabbat shalom. Shabbat shalom. It's good to be here with you again today to uh, discuss the Haftarah portion. Uh, it's a blessing to be able to get into the word and to be able to draw out things that the Father has told us uh, and that will enrich our lives. So with that said, this week's Haftarah portion uh, that matches with Shalech Lecha or uh, Shalech, the Torah portion, uh, is comes to us from Joshua chapter 2. And so if you have your Bibles open, if you would please turn to Joshua 2, and we're going to start reading this uh, this week. We're going to actually read through Joshua chapter 2, because unlike some of the prophets and things of this nature that we would ordinarily have for our Haftarah portions, uh, this one actually reads like a story, uh, because it actually is. It's a historical recounting of what took place. And so because it is, uh, it's a bit more interesting to read it all in one section uh, and then to dissect it from there. So uh, with that said, we're going to start reading here in Joshua chapter 2. It says, Then Joshua the son of Nun sent two men as spies secretly from Shittim, saying, Go, view the land, especially Jericho. So they went and came into the house of a harlot, whose name was Rahav, and lodged there. It was told the king of Jericho, saying, Behold, men from the sons of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. And the king of Jericho sent word to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who have entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. But the women who had taken the two men and hidden them, and said, And she said, Yes, the men came to me, 
but I did not know where they came from. It came about when it was time to shut the gate at dark that the men went out. I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hidden them in the stalks of flax, which she had laid out in order on the roof. So the men pursued them on the road to the Jordan, to the fords, and as soon as those who were pursuing them had gone out, they shut the gate. Now before they lay down, she came up to, the, to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land, and that the terror of you has fallen on us, and that all the inhabitants of the land have melted away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites, who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. When we heard it, our hearts melted, and no courage remained in any man any longer because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. Now therefore, please swear to me by the Lord, since I have dealt kindly with you, that you also will deal kindly with my father's household and give me a pledge of truth and spare my father and my mother and my brothers and my sisters with all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. So the men said to her, our life for yours. If you do not tell this business of ours, and it shall come about when the Lord gives us the land, that we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. Then she let them down by a rope through the window, for her house was on the city wall, so that she was living on the wall. She said to them, Go to the hill country, so that the pursuers will not happen upon you, and hide yourselves there for three days until the pursuers return. Then afterward you may go on your way. The men said to her, We shall be free from this oath to, to you which we have which you have made us swear, unless when we come into the land, you tie this cord of scarlet thread in the window through which you let us down to gather and gather to yourself into the house, your father and your mother and your brothers and all your father's household. It shall come about that anyone who goes out of the doors of your house into the street, his blood shall be upon his own head and we shall be free. But anyone who is with you in the house, his blood shall be on our head if a hand is laid on him. But if you tell this business of ours, then we shall be free from the oath which you have made us swear. She said, According to your words, so be it. So she sent them away, and they departed. And she tied the scarlet cord in the window. They departed and came to the hill country and remained there for three days until the pursuers returned. Now the pursuers had sought them all along the road, but had not found them. Then the two men returned and came down from the hill country and crossed over and came to Joshua the son of Nun and related to him all that had happened to them. They said to Joshua, Surely the Lord has given all the land into our hands. Moreover, all the inhabitants of the land have melted away before us. So what we have here is the story of Joshua selecting two spies to go into the land, specifically into Jericho, to spy out what was before them. So the context of this, of course, in Joshua chapter one, we have the, the command uh, where Joshua is to lead the children of Israel into the land of Israel to take possession of it because it is their promised land. And so here we have uh, spies uh, reconnoitering the land, essentially. Uh, what I find that's ironic about this is that Joshua was one of the original spies, as we just heard about from Ephraim, that Joshua was one of the two faithful spies that brought back a good report and encouraged the people that we are to go into the land and take possession of it. And of course, we know the sad story is that the people did not believe them. They believed the report of the 10 other spies who gave a bad report. 
Um, so how, how interesting is it here that Joshua, the one that was one of the faithful spies, is now selected as the leader of the children of Israel, and he selects two spies. Now, unlike where it tells us in uh, the Torah portion that we just read from, where it says these were the men that were selected and these were the households they were selected from. Here we have no information about who these two men were that were selected as spies. However, we could probably trust that Joshua, who it says in verse one, is the one who selected them, that Joshua is going to look for men that are faithful, men that will bring back a good report, who will not bring back a bad report like the other spies did. I'm pretty sure Joshua would have selected someone who would have followed in his and Caleb's footsteps bringing back a good report and making sure that the people aren't discouraged. Uh, now, here's the thing about this, is that we see that these spies that were selected were likely from a different generation. And what I mean by that is this. So the first generation that came out of Egypt, they were passive, for the most part, participants in what the Lord was doing. In other words, they stood back and they watched him part the Red Sea and then they crossed the Red Sea and then they watched him cover the, the, the Red Sea back up and destroy Pharaoh's army. They watched as the manna came for them. They watched as the, the, rock, the rock brought forth water. They watched as the Lord spoke from his mountain. They watched as these things happened. In other words, for the most part, the Lord did, went before them and did all these things for them. When we come to this portion here, where you've got Joshua and these, this generation that he has risen up as they wandered for 38 years, uh, that you know, many people died in the, in the wilderness, you now have a different generation. This generation, unlike the one that came before them, has been very active. They have been fighting the battles. They dispatched their army against Sihon and Og. They are the ones that conquered that with, of course, the father's help, with, of course, the father's leading and guidance. But they have actively been involved in pursuing the Lord's will. And so now you have a different generation that Joshua is able to draw from. And I believe that plays a factor here in the fact that there's several things that we're going to see that take place with these spies. So these spies here, Joshua choosing from this generation that is actually uh, active in pursuing the father's will. They this generation would have the faith to go to battle, unlike the generation that came before them, where we heard in, in this week's parasha. That generation was afraid to go to battle. Why? I believe it has everything to do with the fact that they were still passive. This generation had already been to battle many times. This generation had just won these major wars against Sihon and Og. This generation knows they have seen firsthand the deliverance of the Lord for them in battle. And so this, I believe, is a generation who is ready to walk forward in that faith. So... We see, however, the interesting thing is within that context, we see in verse one and two that spies are selected. And then before we even leave verse one, it seems like these spies who were given the go ahead to go into the land, did they fall off the wagon? They end up going to a harlot's house. Now, why would they have done that? You know, they're, they're given the, the, the blessing to go spy out the land 
And immediately they take advantage of that and they say, hey, let's go party and let's go find a house of ill repute. Uh, no, see what would have happened. The spies would have come to a harlot's home for a very good reason. It will appear as if they're simply travelers looking for a good time. They're just simply traveling on their way. And so uh, speaking of if, if you talk about this culture, uh, most of your houses of ill repute or, or uh, you know, places, brothels, essentially, were also the inns. So it was it was also the hotel, we would say. OK, so that's exactly where someone would go for lodging. And so it would be very uh, understanding if strangers came into the town and they headed for the hotel. It just so happens that the hotels back then uh, happened to have other businesses going on, if you can understand what I'm saying. So but here's the thing is that they come into this establishment uh, and and the the owner of this establishment, Rahav, she immediately recognizes, she recognizes right away that these men are from the children of Israel. And so did others who then informed the king of Jericho. So it says, you know, in verse two, that the, the king of Jericho is told that spies from Israel have come. How did they know that these men were spies from Israel? How were they identified? Could it have been that uh, they had different clothing, uh, different hairstyles, uh, different um, accents? Could it be that they wore tzitziot as they were instructed? We don't know. But we do know that they were found out, that people discovered that they had come into the city. Okay, so then we see that in verse three, King, the king of Jericho sends word to Rahav and he says, bring these men out if you have seen them. Now, the interesting thing is that Rahav then she hides the men and she lies to the king of Jericho. Okay, so she lies which is seen as, as we're going to see, something that is actually honorable. Okay, so here's, here's a, the, this gets into a whole question. So, for instance, um, you know, we talk about the World War II era, uh, and you talk about uh, the Christians that hid Jews during the World War II era in Germany. Um, I tell you what, uh, if I were in that, that era and someone came to me, no, lying is not good, but... Preserving life is the positive commandment that trumps that. And I'm not in any way advocating that we lie. But if I were in that era and there were people that were being hunted and people that needed to be saved, you're darn right. I would lie right to your face and say they are not here. OK, that's that's just preserving life is much more important. OK, now, again, it's not it's not good to lie. OK, well, I'm not, not condoning that, but we have to understand what is the heavier thing here. What's what has more weight? So. Rahab lies to the king to protect two spies, though. We have to ask that question. Why would she have done this? These weren't people that these were strangers. She didn't know these guys. She didn't know what they were up to, what they were going to do. But she lies to her king to save them. Well, we find our answer as to why she she does this in verses eight through eleven. It says now before they lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that Adonai has given you the land. And that the terror of you has fallen on, uh, on us, and that all the inhabitants of the land have melted away before you. For we have heard how Adonai dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. When we heard it, our hearts melted, and no courage remained in any man any longer because of you. For Adonai, your Elohim, he is Elohim in the heavens above and the earth beneath. So we see that she proclaims a, a faith, it would see, 
it would seem, or at least a, a witness of what is taking place. And she's referring to Adonai having done these things. So we then see that she then uses that to bargain with the spies in verses 12 and 13. She says, now, therefore, please swear to me by Adonai. Okay, that's that's key. Swear to me by Adonai, since I have dealt kindly with you, that you also will deal kindly with my father's household and give me an oat emet, a sign of truth, a pledge of truth and spare my father and my mother and my brothers and my sisters with all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. Now, there's some there's several interesting things about what Rahab says to the spies here. First. Rahab uses the name of Adonai. She uses the tetragrammaton, yod heh vav four times between verses 9 and 12. And his name and his fame obviously has gone forth before the children of Israel in order for her to hear about this. Okay? Secondly, what Rahab says is very similar to the future occurrence that hadn't yet happened at this stage. But if we look at 1 Kings chapter 18, where Elijah, Eliyahu, challenges the prophets of Baal, and of course, what happens is he pours all the water over the sacrifice and the, and the Lord sends down fire and burns up all the water and the sacrifice and all the people, they respond. How do they respond? They fall on their face and they say, Adonai, hu ha Elohim, Adonai, he is the Lord. And so she makes the same basic statement here. Hundreds of years before what uh, Elijah is going to experience, she makes the same statement that Adonai, he is Elohim. And so is this a confession of faith that she made? Uh, did she just confess with her mouth and believe in her heart, according to Romans 10, 9? But now both James, uh, the brother of Yeshua, the author of, of uh, the book of James and the author of the book of Hebrews, they both speak in glowing terms of Rahab's confession of faith. It says in James 2, 24 and 25, you see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them by another way? And then in Hebrews 11:31, Hebrews 11, of course, is the chapter about the great faith of those that have gone before us. Rahab the harlot is counted among them. It says, by faith, Rahab the harlot did not perish with those who were disobedient after she had welcomed the spies in peace. So we see that the uh, apostolic scriptures writers, the New Testament writers, speak in glowing terms of Rahab. Now, there's several interesting, thing, th interesting things about what Rahab did. It's interesting that Rahab hides the two spies. It says, in the stalks of flax, which she had laid out on the roof. Now, flax happens to be the material that makes linen. When you harvest flax uh, and you process it, then this is where linen comes from, is from flax. Now, linen just happens to be the material that the high priest's garments, his undergarments, were made of. These garments was all he was allowed to wear on the holiest day, Yom Kippur, when he walked into the most holy place. So there are those who tout the healing properties, of course, of, of linen. There are those who say that linen has a certain frequency and things of this nature and that it, that it uh, has the ability to heal you if you, if you wear it. Uh, they, and whether or not you believe all that, however, it's interesting that... There might be a connection of sorts here that she hides them in the flax, which produces the linen. They potentially could have been wearing tzitziot, maybe, perhaps. 
which of course ties us to the high priest because it is white and blue, same as what the high priest would wear. She hides them in the flax that produces linen that is what is the undergarment of the high priest. These things are very interesting. Okay, so further, Rahav bargains for the lives of her family, specifically her father's household, her father, her mother, her brothers, her sisters, and all who belong to them. We would have to assume that this would be their household servants and things of this nature. Now, is this bargaining reminiscent of how Avraham bargained for the righteous of those who lived in the city of Sodom, perhaps? Perhaps is Rahab acting in the same uh, vein of thought as what Avraham did when he bargained for all the lives of those. And he said, what if there are 50? And he gets down to what if there are 10? And so it seems like the same thing is being is taking place here where Rahab is bargaining for her family and their servants and everyone that's in their household. Uh, and of course, we know that the spies agree to this agreement. But why do they agree to, as she instructs them, swear by Adonai? Because that is what she says to swear to her by Adonai. In verse 14, the spies who do swear by Adonai, they put a condition on their oath. That she remains silent in regards to them. If she does so, they swear by Adonai to protect her when the children of Israel conquer the city. And we see this oath actually fulfilled four chapters later in chapter six of uh, the book of Joshua. So here's the thing. Oaths are serious business. Uh, swearing to Adonai is even more serious business. So these men could not take this lightly. It says in Numbers 30, verse 2, If a man takes a vow to Adonai or takes an oath to bind himself with a binding obligation, he shall not violate his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. It says then further in Deuteronomy chapter 23. Now keep in mind, Deuteronomy was the retelling by Moshe of everything that Adonai had instructed the people and these men would have heard Moshe speak these words just before this occasion took place because Moshe couldn't go into the land and he commissions Joshua to do so. And when he does so, of course, it is at this time when he is retelling the law. So these men, not too long before they go and spy out the land, they have heard Moshe say all these things. So in, in Deuteronomy chapter 23, verses 21 through 23, it says, when you make a vow to Adonai your Elohim, you shall, you shall not delay to pay it, for it would be sin in you. And Adonai your Elohim will surely require it of you. However, if you refrain from vowing, it would not be sin in you. You shall be careful to perform what goes out from your lips, just as you have voluntarily vowed to the Lord your God what you have promised. This is very serious. Okay, and if we would also then bring in Exodus chapter 20, verse 7, bringing his name to shame, which is to speak in vain. Um, this is what, what they would be accused of, essentially, if they took an oath in the name of Adonai and failed to fulfill it. Now, there's a whole lot of things that can happen here. There's a whole lot of, of ways that that potentially things could have gone wrong and they could not have fulfilled their vow. Now, fortunately for these men, as it turned out, everything worked out. We see in chapter six that they're able to rescue her. But there very well could have easily been a lot of factors come into play that would have potentially prevented them from being able to do so, which would have had serious consequences for them. So this is why I believe these men put further restrictions on in verses 17 through 20 on their oath. And they tell her, look, 
uh, you know, these are the three things that you've got to do. Put this cord of scarlet thread in your window so that we can identify you. It only applies to those people that are in your house. If they walk out of your house, it's no it's null and void. Uh, and then you remain silent about us. OK. And so those three conditions are put upon her. And of course, she agrees to them. But as we read on, verse 22 tells us something very, very interesting. It says they departed and they came to the hill country and remained there for three days until the pursuers returned. Now, the pursuers had sought them all along the road, but had not found them. They were hidden for three days. Hmm. Just theme seemed to run through scripture uh, in any way. So then we see in verse 23, there's uh, something very important. The two men returned and came down from the hill country and crossed over and came to Joshua, the son of Nun, and related to him all that had happened to them. That's an important distinction. You see, upon their return, the spies reported directly to Joshua. Unlike what we saw in the parashah, they didn't make the same mistake that the spies did previously. They didn't make the mistake of telling all the people what they had discovered, but instead they went directly to Joshua and told him what they had found. So as such, speaking directly with Joshua, they're able to avoid anyone converting their report into a bad report. So I believe these men understood exactly the scenario that they were dealing with. Now, the words that they reported to Joshua, surely Adonai has given all the land into our hands. Moreover, all the inhabitants of the land have melted away before us. In other words, let's go. It's ripe. It's ready. There's nothing holding us back. These men were faithful spies chosen by one of the two faithful spies from 40 years prior. Okay, so what do we say about this parasha? How can we uh, apply this to our lives in a way that is meaningful? I believe that there are two things that we can take away from from this Haftarah portion. Okay, the first thing, when we see that Rahav, she was a heathen, she had never experienced the freedom of being set free from her sin. She had never experienced being filled with the spirit of Adonai, yet she had enough faith to put her life on the line for two strangers and defy her king because she recognized the authority of Adonai and her behavior then reflected her thoughts. Okay, so as such, if a heathen who had no relationship with Adonai can display such faith to an unknown God, how much more should our lives be known for our remarkable faith? We have a relationship with Adonai and we claim to be his servants, we should be living testimonies of that faith, of him working directly in our lives. If a harlot can display this kind of faith and be talked about hundreds of years later, when the New Testament writers speak of her in glowing terms, and this was a woman who had no previous experience, had no context within which to believe that Adonai was her God. And yet, she makes the claim, Adonai, he is the God of the heavens above and the earth beneath. How much more should we, who already have had the benefit of being set free from our sins, who have had the benefit of being filled with the Spirit, how much more remarkable should our lives be? Because we have that advantage. So the question here is, are we? Are we being greater than Rahav? Are we behaving in such a way that hundreds of years from now, our faith will be spoken of in glowing terms? Second application here. 
We talked a little bit about the, gen- the difference in the two generations. So the generation that entered the land of Israel was a different generation than the one that left Egypt. The one that left Egypt was passive. And was pri- they were primarily observers of what Adonai did for them. The generation that entered the land of Israel was actively following what Adonai was doing through them. So the question here for us today is, which one are we? Are we sitting back and allowing the Father to do things for us? Or are we actually out there actively following His will, actively putting His will into action, actively conquering the giants in the land? Which one are we doing? Are we sitting back and are we squabbling and are we waiting upon him to provide things for us and complaining when he doesn't and and moaning and griping and doing all the the ten trials that Ephraim talked about? Are we guilty of this? Are we sitting there and sitting back on our laurels and allowing him to pave the way for us and then just passively following? Or are we actually taking what his word says and walking forth in faith and like the two spies saying, the Lord is with us. This land is ours. Let's go in and get it. Which one are we? So the questions for us today, are we actively pursuing the Lord's will? And is our faith such a faith that it will be spoken of hundreds of years from now that in such glowing terms as Rahab's faith was? So these are the things that we're challenged with today. This is how we can actively pursue these principles in our lives. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word and for the the richness there is there and for the guidance, the counsel that you give us through your word. We thank you, Father, for the examples of the men and women of faith that have gone before us, that have shown us how to remain faithful to you, even those who did not even know you, yet were faithful to you. What an example that is, Father. And we thank you for providing a record of that example in your word for us, that we might learn of it, that we might glean of of the things of you through it. So, Father, we ask that you would challenge us and that we would not be passive in our faith, but instead that we would be actively pursuing your will in such a way that we would conquer the giants in our land, the giants in our lives, that we would move forward and claim the land that you have promised to us, that we would live in such a way that we would hear, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of your Lord. We pray all these things in the name of your son, Yeshua. Amen. Shabbat Shalom. And now we leave you with the ironic blessing.
bless you and keep you. May the Lord make His face shine upon you, be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up His countenance upon you and give you peace. Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. Stop the